Welcome to another episode of Rockstar Violinist, the podcast from Electric Violin Shop that brings you intimate interviews with the most innovative string players in the world. This episode is unique in that our subject is not a musician. He doesn't play any instrument at all, yet he's been one of the most influential and innovative names in the music business for many years. Ned Steinberger has been making instruments since the 1970s. His Steinberger basses and guitars have been played by some of the biggest names in rock. Among them, Eddie Van Halen, David Bowie, Sting, Geddy Lee, and countless others. In 1990, he started making bowed stringed instruments. And his idea that an electric bowed instrument should not necessarily look or sound like its acoustic counterpart is a radical departure from the conventional wisdom in the field. This episode is brought to you by NS Designs, Ned's company. They make a full suite of orchestral instruments, violins, violas, cellos, and upright basses, as well as the innovative Omni Bass, which is a hybrid upright slash electric bass on a 34-inch scale, and the NS Electric Bass. They have three different levels of instruments in nearly every category, from the entry-level Wave, which is affordable to nearly everyone, to the mid-level NXTA series, to the pro-level CR series. I had a chance to fly up to Maine to meet with Ned in his design studio next to his house and see the informal Steinberger Museum where he stores many of his past and current designs in various states of completion. It was a real privilege to sit down with such an icon in the music business and chat with him about life, art, and music. I said that Ned's not a musician, so what are we listening to? Throughout this interview, we'll be featuring the work of prominent musicians that are using Ned's instruments to create their art. This is Charles Yang doing a cover of Saya's Chandelier. Every sound you've heard is created with an NS Design violin. Now on to the chat. I know you're going to enjoy this conversation with Ned Steinberger, rock star, violin maker. You, you started out um, not originally building instruments, but building furniture, right? Well, when I was young, I spent a lot of time making things. Uh, I was a woodworker at age 12 and 13. I got a little bit of guidance from my father, but mostly I was uh, independently, I mean, I taught myself. I was, I was excited about it, put a lot of uh, my young energy into... Uh, building things, and I always built things from my own designs. I was, um, I'm dyslexic actually. I had a difficulty learning to read when I was in school and you know, as, as in elementary school. I, in some ways that's an advantage for me because it, it kind of made me more independent. I figured stuff out for myself. I didn't go to a book to figure something out. I didn't, if I wanted to build a chair or a table or some kind of project I was interested in, a, a go-kart, for example, that was a fun project, um, I would look, take a look around, figure out what I wanted to do independently. So design is something that's been a, a part of my focus ever since I was a kid, long before I had any idea that it was going to be a career or, or even thought about a career. It was just what I liked to do. So when I uh, 
you know, I, I went off to college, which was not overly successful for me, getting back to the, the whole, uh, you know, idea of uh, having a learning disability. I eventually went to art school, which was, was okay. But when I, when I finally graduated from art school, I realized that what I wanted to do is I wanted to be a designer. I didn't know if I could do it. I wasn't trained to do it. But um, I had the desire to do it. Uh, and I felt I had some some uh, talent for it. So uh, the logical thing for me was furniture. I was a woodworker, designed various uh, projects along the way, and um, I actually got work as a furniture designer. As I, as I mentioned earlier, we're, we're sitting on prototype chairs that I designed actually for the Thone Furniture Company when I worked there for a while before I got involved in musical instruments. But um, uh, I got very lucky. I've, I've, I've been lucky all my life, really. Uh, and I met Stuart Spector, who was working in a, in a shop with me. where We were sharing space in a woodworker, woodworking co-op. And Stuart was making uh, guitars at the time. He needed a, a design for a bass guitar. And I said, you know what? That sounds like a lot of fun. I don't know anything about it, but I can learn... And what could be more fun than getting involved with musical instruments? I mean, chairs are fun, too, but, I mean, um, making tools for artists is pretty hard yeah. to compete with. It's very exciting. So I got into it, uh, but when I started out, I really didn't understand any of the fine points of how... Uh, the pickup works and how strings work and why you would want to use maple for a neck as opposed to another material. But I took all that as a given. So I, I used conventional woods, you know, conventional. It wasn't entirely conventional construction in terms of the fine points of the way I put it together. But the, the net result was an instrument that, from a functional standpoint, wasn't that different from a fender. But... From a, an ergonomic standpoint, from a visual standpoint, it's very different. In particular, I was focused on the ergonomic aspect. Again, I was involved in, in furniture design, in particular in seating, which is all about ergonomics. So I applied that same kind of thinking to the, to the base, and I, I worked very hard to get it to fit the body and to, and to be balanced, except that couldn't get it to balance the way I wanted it to balance. It had these heavy tuning machines on the end of the neck, and no matter what I did, I even put a counterweight at the other end of the body. You know, And actually, that's what led me to the headless concept, because okay. I'm, I'm putting the counterweight here, and I got the weight. Wait a second. I got all this weight out here, which I'm trying to deal with. If I put the weight back on the body, then it would balance, and there's no reason you can't tune it at the other end. I mean, you, you know, you've got to have a four strings at the time, it was right. four string, uh, now it's all, not all five, but it's, it's a lot of five and six string basses, but back then it was all four strings, and so uh, I thought, myself, well, I could put the tuners at the other end, and my balance, the balance problems would be gone, and, and sure enough, it, it, it took me a while to figure out how to do it right, but uh, that's what really drew me into the, the music, musical instrument business, and, and made what made it a life's work for me was that I came across this concept that I was convinced had tremendous value, that it could be used in different ways to 
make life better for musicians. That's what, you know, if you're going to make tools for musicians, your whole point is to make, make it more fun, you know, uh, sonically and uh, more fun, you know, just to have the instrument uh, connected to your body in, in a good way. Sure. My idea, and a lot of it, you know, the original Steinberger bass was, was very minimal in part because my feeling was that in the ideal condition for a musician is to be completely unaware that this instrument is not actually part of your own body. Absolutely. That it's, uh, you know, the more it's just natural and integrated into the way you move and, and uh, play, that's what's, if it's on your mind, if you're thinking about the instrument, well, that's just distracting you from your art, which has nothing to do right. with the instrument itself. It has to do with the music. So that was always my goal, uh, to make the instrument sort of seamless with the artist. And having an instrument that doesn't balance well, that, that went against the grain for me. So anyway, um, what happened was, after getting, getting going with that uh, business, um, got involved with my own company, Steinberger Sound Company, uh, I was at a, a gig one night, so somebody, I, I wish I could remember who it was exactly, he was playing his Steinberger bass, but I was out enjoying myself, seeing my instrument, you know, really working for, uh, for musicians, and, you know, it's a fantastic um, part of my work is that uh, you get to go out and hear, you know, hear and see the... Um, the fruits of, of your labor, you know? Yeah. Uh, and uh, this is very exciting. So, I, um, and at this performance, there was a, a violin player, uh, Daryl Anger, who's uh, really a fabulous uh, musician. Uh, he was early on in his career, as I was at that stage. And we got to talking. He said, That's a cool bass you got there. He said, You know, you should make violins. Violins? Why should I make violins? I mean, I said, well, the same balance issues you're dealing with on the bass are they're different on a violin, but they're just as intense, just as important, just as problematic for players yeah. because you've got this weight which is cantilevered out from your shoulder. You, you have a very uh, small... Um, distance between your shoulder and your chin and, and it's that that small distance has to lever leverage all this structure that's going out you know and the further away that that weight is from your shoulder the heavier it feels so I mean the, the logic of a headless violin was immediately clear to me uh, and that's how I got started on it because I mean I, I love designing instruments you know business was, it's never been my thing, particularly. Um, I do the business so that I can do what I really love to do, which right. is to is to solve problems. Is really what the design is all about. You know, sure. have a problem, the instrument's neck heavy. So, ooh, that's an interesting problem. Finding a solution to the problem is what drives my work to you know to solve problems. So. I like problems for that reason because, you know, I mean, I don't always solve them, but at least um, I'm not bored, you know, right. I've got something to do. Um, and anyway, 
that's how I got started on a violin. I, I built um, a few violins uh, under the Steinberger brand. Much more radical than what I do now altogether back then. Um, I was, you know, my thinking in those days was very much um, maybe influenced by uh, what well, was somewhat influenced by Star Wars movies, for example, where, you know, uh, thinking about what would, what is the technology of the future? How are things going to look in the future? Sure. What, where can this stuff go? I wasn't worried about, you know, whether there was any bass players out there or violin players for that matter who would be interested in this. Now, I was interested in imagining what could be for its own sake, you know, for wherever it might go, you know, hoping that people would be able to respond positively and, and we could, uh, you know, build on that. But um, it, uh, so this instrument was, was very radical. It had absolutely no body at all. Little tuners at the at the uh, what would have been the body end, but there was no body. Right. Um, and uh, didn't build many of those because uh, I had sold the company to Gibson, you know, Steinberger Sound Company to Gibson, and they um, uh, for good reason. They're going, you know, what are you making violins for? Yeah, <laughs> it's like they're cool violins, but uh, you know, you. It, we're making bass guitars and guitars here, and this is, uh, which is a whole nother, you know, the whole kind of tension there between bowed instruments and fretted instruments. I don't, there's not a tension from a, a, a musician's standpoint. I mean, they're all instruments that everybody enjoys, you know, hearing different instruments and so on. But from a business standpoint, there's a tension there because they're just very different markets. Sure. So, uh, so I, I, that was sort of the end of violins for a while. But then when I um, decided to go back on my own, which wasn't my original intention because, as I said, I uh, wasn't particularly interested in business, but I was interested in being able to do what I wanted to do. And, you know, in a corporate environment like Gibson, I wasn't able to do that. So I, I needed to move on and get back to my own work. And that's when I got involved with the double basses, um, because, well, for a variety of reasons. Ned just mentioned the double bass. Here's NS design artist John Burgess on his CR5M bass with his tune called Frenetic. challenging of all the instruments that I've ever been involved with the violin is this because it's it's miniaturized right it's just 
such a, and if you're interested in ergonomics, I mean, what an opportunity uh, to try and solve problems because there are so many uh, issues that violin players have with how they hold their instrument and, and you know, uh, bruising on the chin, shoulder problems, arm problems. I mean, you know, just, uh, yeah, guitar players have to get sore shoulders too, and, uh, but violin players, it's just much more of an extreme problem. So anyway, that's why it's so difficult to, uh, to deal with violin, at least one of the reasons. Also, you know, sonically they're challenging too. Electric violins can be very harsh and, you know, you've really got to get that pickup right. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, anyway, we're, we, uh, I had actually done a lot of work on violins uh, actually prior to the, the first double bass. Uh, I, um, I worked a lot with Eric Aceto. Uh, I learned a lot from him. He's an electric violin maker and player. And uh, I did some designs that he built for me. Um, and that, that was a transition to the what we have now currently as an NS violin. Yeah, so your pickups are revolutionary in the business. You're the only maker that I'm aware of that has a different pickup setting for plucking versus bowing. And I guess that probably, I'd have to guess, probably originated with the double bass, right? Indeed it did. Very good guess. When I uh, first started to uh, get interested in, in making the, uh, the double bass, electric double bass, I, you know, as a non-musician, of course, I completely dependent on the input that I get from musicians, not from the ideas for what I want to do, but for the for learning what it is that's needed, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, or what people want. I asked people about. I asked bass, you know, double bass players what they would like from an electric double bass. They said uh, almost to a man, with some exceptions, but pretty much. First of all, it, it, as much as possible, in every possible way, make it as much like an acoustic bass as you can. And another thing, that very strong input I got from people who were a little more in the know, they said, well, play the electric uprights, and you know, you can't get a good bowed sound out of an electric upright. So really, I wouldn't bother with that. Just focus on the pits. Well, uh, neither... That, uh, Advice like that is, is not advice that I'm not likely to take. First of all, I'm not <laughs> interested in making an electric double bass that's almost exactly like an acoustic bit. It's an imitation of an acoustic double bass. Right. For me, electric instruments are... They uh, have their own personality, their own special opportunities. You know, sure. when you uh, go from an acoustic instrument to an electric instrument, you give up a lot. Mm -hmm. You give up the simplicity. Uh, not, I mean, not that uh, acoustic instruments are simple, but that there's a certain kind of earthiness to it. I mean, you don't have any amplifiers to plug into. It's just you and your instrument, and it vibrates on your body, and you're, you're making the whole thing yourself. You're not dependent on anything else to 
create the sound. So th those are wonderful qualities that they're gone when you go electric. Right. So what are you going to do? Just imitate other parts of an acoustic instrument, you're going to end up with a loser because you're going to lose all that other stuff and, and you spend all your time trying to imitate the other qualities. Why not think about what you can do with an electric instrument that's better is not the right word for it because it, it's not better or worse, but something that is exciting in its own right, that has its own voice, its own identity, and that does things that you can't do with an acoustic instrument. So with an acoustic instrument, it can, it, it can only respond in one way. D different players will sound different on the same instrument. But if you got a machine and you pluck the string consistently a certain way, you know, that instrument will always respond exactly the same way. Sure. Because it has only one mode of response. Well, that's one of the opportunities you have with electric instruments is you have a pickup, you could have different pickups, mm -hmm. you could have tone controls, you have a volume control, which is pretty basic, you could run it through effects, um, you could do all kinds of things. So, um, exploiting that opportunity to do more um, has always been behind my work. Speaking of exploiting the ability to use effects, here's NS design artist Jason Yang playing a Daft Punk medley on his CR4 violin. What you heard first there was a talk box effect. First of all, I realized that if you want to get a, an, a good bowed sound, the piezo pickup is a tremendous uh, way to do it. Magnetic pickups actually are not used very often on violins because they're inherently, they respond to the vibration in a vertical mode. Mm -hmm. When you bow an instrument, you drive the string horizontally or you know laterally or however you, whatever your frame of reference is but you you have to pick up the that, that lateral vibration that's why an acoustic violin has a bass bar mm -hmm. and a sound post it's asymmetrical because the strings are not vibrating up and down they're they're going sideways but the top and the back if they want to pump air into the pump you know, air pressure into the room, or sound pressure into the room. Hmm, I seem to be wheezing here a little bit, but um, when you pump, you've got to convert that side-to-side -side vibration into vertical vibration in the top and back, and that's, again, why it's asymmetrical with the sound post on one side and the bass bar on the other. 
So, I, um, I realized that I, could, I, I needed to get that lateral vibration for the boat sound, which I was able to do with piezos. And the geometry is very important. It's not, you can't just stick a piezo pickup in there and it's going to sound good. You've got to figure out how to place it in the vibrations. You know, you've got a structure that's vibrating. I mean, obviously these solid body instruments don't vibrate as much as an acoustic instrument which is another interesting point we can maybe get into later because there are a lot of advantages in that for a player. But um, anyway, when I, I learned how to get that lateral vibration and get a great bowed, big bowed response, but then when I go to pits, um, with all this lateral sensitivity, you know, and when you pluck a string, you, you, your first transient is sideways, right? You, you pluck the string, you don't pull it. I mean, if you're slapping a bass or something, you might pull it up, but 99% right. of the time people are intentionally, uh, when they play pits, they, they, they set the string off side to side initially so it doesn't bang into the fingerboard. Right. And then over time, it loses its, its uh, polarity in that way and it starts to vibrate more all around. It's like mm -hmm. with a bow, you're just always preventing the string from vibrating up and down. But when you pluck it, you may start it off to the side, but then it has a mind of its own, and eventually it's pretty much going up and down as much as it is side to side. So if you think about an acoustic guitar, for example, which is very opposite to a violin in a lot of ways, because it has a flat top, the strings are very close, you know, a flat top guitar, strings are very close. Um, when you pluck the string, it, initially it goes parallel to the finger to the to the soundboard, right? It's it's mm -hmm. running parallel. So if the top can only really respond up and down, then that initial plucked transient is pretty much ig largely ignored by the guitar. It doesn't all that attack that you would have there from that huge initial attack is suppressed intentionally so that you don't just have a thing and then you know fade right out you want to limit your attack and you want to save that energy so that you have sustained because you're not dragging a bow across there it's, you pluck that string that's it I mean that's all the energy it's got until you pluck it again right, right. so what happens is with a flat top acoustic guitar as an example you pluck the string it initially um, suppresses the the initial attack and then over time as a string is moving around it, it more in all directions then it becomes much more responsive to that so you get a, a sustained kind of sound it's essentially organic compression it is a kind of organic compression i yeah. think that's a good way to put it never thought of it that way but absolutely so but so when i tipped it uh, created this condition on the double bass where it was very sensitive to side to side and you pluck the string and bam I mean it it's and it's easy to demonstrate uh, we're not going to do that right now but um, you get a huge attack and limited sustain which is kind of you know I thought about it a lot you know why do people play acoustic upright basses pizzicato, 
in bluegrass and jazz. And here's an instrument that's designed to be bowed. Why is it that people are getting such good, good results playing it plucked? And I think the, the reason is that really an acoustic bass has a hard time uh, creating as powerful a tone as, let's say, a violin could dominate an acoustic bass. Because those high frequencies, your ears are very efficient at those high frequencies. Mm -hmm. The whole instrument is efficient at those high frequencies. Um, you don't need, require as much energy to create a louder sound. When you get down into, you know, below 100 cycles, um, it takes a lot more energy to get sound. So bass player is kind of, it's tough to be heard. So better get a big a, a percussive pump at the beginning and that can be heard. Whereas if you suppressed that and made it more sustained, you wouldn't, you wouldn't get the rhythmic effect and you, know, you wouldn't be able to hear it so well. So uh, this system that was designed originally for, for bowing works well. It clearly works well. I mean, people uh, are using instruments in that way and making great music. So anyway, with the electric, I was, you know, the polarity I was capable of, of producing was more extreme than you would have on an acoustic instrument. So it was very sensitive to side to side, great bow, bow tone, great bow tone, but you go to pluck it, I wasn't satisfied. It was just uh, too percussive, it was not everything I thought it could be. So I figured out a way to switch the direction of sensitivity, and that's what that switch does. So when you're in the bow mode, that that bridge is very sensitive to side-to-side -side vibration, very uh, responsive to the bow, big attack with pits, really more so even than an acoustic bass because it's more isolated in that direction. So that's why I created this secondary position, which is up-and-down sensitivity, like a bass, like a, uh, a flat top guitar, it suppresses the attack and gives you more, more sustain for a more, um, a smoother sound, more versatile in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, it's revolutionary. It's uh, it's definitely a, a thing that we get a lot of questions about. You know, how's this, how's this switch work? And and it's interesting how that works. Um, I don't think I would have. I'm almost sure I would not have done... If I was starting out with a violin, I wouldn't have been so interested in the pit sound. I mean, I'm, I'm interested in all aspects of, of the instrument, but certainly if you made a violin that didn't have a good bowed sound, you wouldn't get very... I mean, that's what these sure. bass players do. You don't really need a good bowed sound as long as it plays pits well. You're certainly not going to work on... You know, a violin is so predominantly bowed, the pits is less important sure. relatively. But I learned how to, to uh, get these two different kinds of sounds, and now you can you have a, a situation where your violin can uh, sound a little more like a, a mandolin, let's say, than it would otherwise, because it can, has a smoother pitch response. Yeah, for sure. So that's the story there.
So that's the explanation on the polarity switch, straight from the mouth of the inventor. That's heavy stuff, so we're going to take another musical break here. This is NS design artist Michelle Farman on her CR5 cello. This piece is called Gesture Study, and this recording is from a live performance in Vancouver in 2014. So you've had a chance to work with a lot of great artists throughout your career, both in bowed strings and in guitars and basses. Who, who are some of the highlights? I mean, you mentioned Daryl Anger is the guy that sort of kicked off the, the thought of the headless violin. Um, but yeah, just we'd love to hear some, some names and maybe some stories of people that you work with. Well, um, I guess that... Um you know, I've worked with a lot of different musicians over the years. Um, and starting out, you know, we had, uh, you know, part of the reason we were successful making the Steinberger basses that we had so many great musicians, uh, you know, Sting, the Rolling Stones, you know, Bill Wyman of the Rolling Stones, and um, just um, Getty Lee, Lots and lots of uh, top players um, were uh, Leland Sklar were playing the, uh, the bass, and that's um, so important for gaining acceptance for this is sort of strange beast. But it was it was it was embraced by um, top musicians. The guitar we had uh, you know similar kind of uh, interest in the guitar. Eddie Van Halen was playing our guitar. Yeah. I'm still in touch with, with Ed after all these years, which is great. I haven't stayed in touch with most of the musicians that I've met over the years, in large part because we live in very different worlds. I, I'm not a sure. musician. I don't go out to a lot of shows. I, I live here in rural Maine now. <laughs> so um, I, uh, I don't have all that much personal contact with, with a lot of the people I've met over the years. Um, with our... Uh, violins, uh, you know, we have um, some great players out there. We've got uh, Charles Yang, mm -hmm. uh, who's doing great work with a violin, uh, and uh, Jason Yang also is a great player. Um, I've been making violins for Laurie Anderson for many, many years. She's had violins from every phase of my career. Um, she's a wonderful person. Um, so, but there's, there's lots of people out there playing the instruments who don't come to mind at the moment. I'm not great with names, to be perfectly <laughs> honest. So, um, but it's not so much the personal experience I have with them. It's, for me, it's the knowledge that they have chosen to make their music with an instrument that uh, I created and a lot of times uh, 
players will tell me that they were inspired by the instrument. That's the most wonderful thing because that's the idea. The idea right. is to create a tool that helps an artist to achieve their goals and to um, to dream in new directions and so on. And of course, our instruments are very uh, oriented towards um, the future, uh, towards exploration, um, experimentation. So um, if if the instrument performs well and people really are, you know, musicians are really enjoying them and making the music, uh, that's, that's what it's all about. Well, and it's kind of cool because the, the music that they're making is the art, but then you've created basically a piece of art also for them, so the tool is also a piece of art as much as, as their finished product is. Well, I would say not as much. Okay. Uh, the um, the thing is that if you if you ask a musician, you know, what matters to you about your instrument? Pretty much to a man, the sound. Okay, it's pretty obvious. The sound is very important. Um, but I have a little uh, different uh, view of it because of what I've seen, um, and that is that there are three different aspects. You, you could divide the, an instrument into three categories, sound, feel, and aesthetics. Mm -hmm. And clearly the feel of it's very important, and the, and the setup and everything on an instrument is extremely important for practical reasons. Um, but some of the feel aspects are just more psychological, more personal. But the visual aspect is hugely important for musicians. You're going out on stage with this instrument. You may not think of it that way necessarily, but you care what you look like, and you want to play an instrument that you love. You want to love the way it looks. For sure. If I created an instrument that performed exactly the same way the instruments we, we uh, produce now, but they had no aesthetic appeal, nobody would play it. Right. I don't care how great the sound is or what, it's gotta look, feel, and play the way a musician, to what, in a way that the musician aspires to. Uh, so, yeah, it's a work of art in some sense, uh, the instrument itself, but again, in, in it's subservient to its role as a tool. In other words, it's made beautiful so that it can function as a tool effectively. Because, uh, and, and an audience, if they see a, mus a musician playing an instrument that has no visual appeal, that's going to diminish their experience. For sure. But music, on the other hand, that's the end art. That's, in my mind, on another level uh, uh, of importance and... Um, and, and artistic, uh, artisticness, for a better word, for lack of a better word, you know, that's that's what it's really all about. It's about inspiring musicians to make great music. Well, I think we talked about this before that, and and you can tell that you're a designer because I when I say that the violin is like this ergonomic disaster, and you say that well, it's 
it's certainly got a lot of opportunities for improvement. Um, playing the violin is just such an unnatural thing to do. And, and every one of us who knows a lot of violinists... I didn't say that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I mean, we could all name people whose careers have ended with injuries yes, indeed. from playing the violin. You know, I have friends who've, who've had to step away from the instrument for as many as a couple of years or maybe entirely because of injuries sustained from playing the violin. So I think it, it diminishes art in general when you've got a person who's uh, committed their life to making art who can no longer do it because playing the instrument has damaged them in some way. It's a personal tragedy. I mean, it's uh, so sad. You know, I mean, I know there are many musicians who really cannot, especially violinists, who can't play anymore. But what a, that's tough. Tough to go through, I would think. I mean, I, I don't have that experience myself as not as a non-player, but I can I can relate. That sounds really rough to me. Yeah. This is NS design artist Trevor Dick taking his CR violin out for a spin. electric violin shop standpoint, one of the things that we really love about the NS design is that you've got three different levels of the violins. We've got the, the, the CR, which is the, the high-end violin. You've got the, the NXT-A now with the, with the uh, new active pickup that you guys put in there with a super capacitor for power, which is completely revolutionary. We love that. And then you've got the Wave, which is still an outstanding instrument but it's at a much more accessible price for a certain segment of the market. And I think there are a lot of manufacturers who really have not paid as much attention to the different segments of the market. Um, sort of talk about maybe what the mindset was behind trying to come up with these different levels of instruments that would maybe be able to access different parts of the market. Well, um, I never set out to make expensive instruments. That's not my goal. In other words, some people, uh, handmade instruments made by a luthier who spends three months of his life building the instrument and um, using the, the most uh, exotic materials possible. And uh, I mean, that's a great thing. And great instruments are made that way, but not that many people are gonna to get to play them because they're too expensive. Um, so making instruments that are affordable has always been more meaningful to me than making instruments which are uh, these models of perfection or I mean there's this very uh, specialized thing that is very that people don't have access to. So there but when you design something new you're a, and you're a small operation, you don't really have a lot of choice. It's going to get expensive. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can't afford to sell instruments to people for less than they cost you or you won't make right, instruments. Sure. They, that's not going to do the larger public any good. you somehow got to have a business that's viable. So the initial offerings tend to be expensive, 
because they're they can't be cheap because you don't you you forced into making things more by hand initially and making um, uh, just the cost of, of making the instruments initially is is pretty high high enough that it's really not possible to offer them at a a popular price so they, by def, they, by nature they have to be expensive but then I'm always seeking to to get models in that would be accessible to a larger public. So that excites me, you know, that's what I'd like to be able to do and that's why we've developed these three tiers. So we have the original higher end instruments which have all the bells and whistles, um, which are fantastic instruments. Um, then we have, uh, and that's the CR series, and we have the NXT and now the NXTA, there's an advancement on that product, uh, which is made in the same factory as the higher-end instruments. Uh, it's a fabulous uh, factory, the NBE factory in the Czech Republic. So they make, and that's the, the lowest-priced model they can make is the NXT. It's kind of a mid-priced product. Mm -hmm. um, and the wave instruments are in another category again. They're considerably less expensive and really affordable. They are, we couldn't make those in the U.S. or the Czech Republic. They kind of have to be made in Asia mm -hmm. uh, just because of the pricing realities. So we work very hard on all three levels because, well, I for one believe in all those levels. The, you know, in making something that's Again, this has all the bells and whistles, and is is sort of near perfect, and then something which is more affordable. The, the The bottom line for me is that every instrument we make needs to be really playable, really work well, be a good instrument. You know, you can get really cheap, crummy instruments that they're really are no fun to play, a student can't really learn on them well, that kind of, so I don't want to go there. I want even our lowest price instruments that a professional like you could pick it up, might not be your first choice, but you got a gig, you got the, your wave violin, and you go out there and, you know, you're pretty happy with the sound, plays well, gives you an opportunity to, to do a great performance, even on our most basic models. That's that's the uh, starting point. We've got to have that. So that's the reason for, for having the three levels. Yeah, fantastic. So there's a feature on the CR series that um, that we talk to people a lot about, and that's basically the, the low cut or the high pass filter is built into that. Talk a little bit about maybe why you came up with the idea of doing that and, and what the, the theory is behind that. Well, yeah, I can, actually. Um, I was very lucky to have met and had a chance to work a bit with Norman Pickering. I don't know if you've heard of Norman Pickering. Mm -hmm. um, he unfortunately uh, passed away at a very uh, at an old age, so it was not a, a tragedy or anything, but still, I, I miss him. Uh, because he was so helpful to me in my work. You know, he started out doing uh, 
phonograph uh, cartridges. They're very successful with that, but eventually gave that up and just dedicated himself to the science of bowed instruments. And whenever I had problems, I always would go to Norman for his advice. I said, you know, Norman, these instruments are sounding good, but they got a lot of kind of a thuddy sound when you when you change direction of mm -hmm. the bow, particularly on the high E string. Now, like every electric violinist is, is well familiar with, with that phenomenon. Right. So I'm going, you know, I don't really like it. I'd like to be able to address that. So I'd like to be more less prominent. You know, obviously it's it's part of part of the sound of an acoustic violin too, but it electrics tend to bring it out more. Mm -hmm. So um, he said, well, it's all subsonic frequency, well below the, the useful range of the violin. What you need to do is get rid of it. And I would, and the other thing is on an acoustic violin, your low, um, um, G-string um, is it actually I'm trying to remember now the numbers but I think it's um, it's right around 160 cycles to the fundamental on your G-string okay but your violin body and the whole acoustic structure of the violin never goes below 200 cycles right with any volume at all so when you play the low notes on your G-string, you're playing the first harmonic. You're not playing. You know, you're, you're hearing the first harmonic. Yeah, the harmonic. body's eating them. Yeah. You just can't reproduce it. Right. It just doesn't have the capacity. Again, that's a, you know talking about the advantage of an electric instrument as opposed to acoustic. Obviously, you don't have those problems with an electric instrument. You can get full response down to 20 cycles if you want. So... So the pickup in electronics, the electronic... Uh, the, the electric sound that you're generating has a much wider frequency response than a violin, and it 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 loves the 30 or 40 cycle subharmonic uh, 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 from the bow. And it projects it right out there in your face. Right. So, hence, to have that switch to chop the low end off more in in imitation of conventional violin. And it does give you, it does address the the um, the bow noise there, and uh, it also generally is a little bit more, sounds more like a, an acoustic violin because it's the frequency response is more closely tailored to what an acoustic violin can do. With all this talk about bowed stringed instruments, let us not forget that NS Design also makes electric basses. This is bassist Donald Waugh performing at the NS Design booth at Summer NAM 2017 in Nashville, playing on an NS Design radius bass. But I, but I, but I'm feeling lonely, I'm feeling scared, whoa, I'm feeling kind of weird. Maybe I should grow my hair to be accepted in your crew. Do 
But I you try you fail you try you there's there's sort of this tension in the business too that guitar players don't deal with and and I know you probably when you were dealing with guitar players throughout the years Eddie Van Halen never came to you and said hey can you make my electric guitar sound like a Taylor acoustic no he never did <laughs> but we get that from violinists all the time I want my electric violin to sound more like an acoustic and it's and it's a little frustrating for us because well if you want an acoustic you play an acoustic this is an electric it's a, it's a whole reimagining of what the violin can do and and should do yet we still find ourselves a lot of time wanting to play some of the acoustic literature on electric violins for various sound production reasons so maybe talk about the challenge that you're trying to create something that is new and different and technologically very um, unique, but still trying to retain some of that old sound and feel. Well, uh, certainly an electric violin is never going to sound exactly like an acoustic violin. Um, but it can actually sound... Not that different, okay? It's never going to be exactly the same. But if you set up one of our violins, uh, you know, with a really clean amp and, you know, get the EQ right and so on, you can make it sound a lot like an acoustic violin, if that's what you want. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, a lot of the players that uh, have been attracted to NS instruments have commented on that, how much they can sound like their acoustic. But... That's only one dimension of the sound. Now you can take that and you can go pretty much anywhere you want with it. That's, I mean, for me, electric instruments are a kind of a new frontier for musicians who are generally steeped in a classical tradition. So, yeah, you want it to be able to sound in a way that where you can play traditional violin music with an electric instrument and have it sound good and pleasing at one end and then you want to be able to take it to, to a different territory if you're so inclined so um, but the idea that you just make the instrument so it can imitate an acoustic again as we talked before that's, that's not my thing I believe that, that electric instrument should have its own voice um, and that that's something that musicians have the opportunity to explore and um, hopefully uh, create new music that uh, is meaningful to them and to uh, their audience. So we've just gotten in at the Electric Violin Shop, we've just gotten in the Wave Cello. And um, so that, it sort of completes the, the quartet of instruments um, more or less in the, in the, in the, in the, in the WAVE, the NXT, and the CR. Um, so what's next? What's, what's the next uh, challenge for, for Ned, the designer, the guy who's always trying to find a problem to solve? Well, I think that, um, as we talked about earlier, uh, I think there's opportunities to uh, improve the ergonomics of the instrument. Um, one thing is uh, weight and balance. And uh, so there's some projects I'm working on there to 
uh, optimize the weight and balance and, and make the instrument lighter and also have the, the center of gravity more back towards the shoulder as we talked about before. Um, and um, I guess in terms of uh, cello and double bass, there really is nothing um, in particular in the pipeline uh, that's so different than what we've done before. Bringing in the wave series, of course, is very important for us to make these instruments available to a, a larger segment of the population. So there's, there's a lot of work that goes into that. Um, and, uh, you know, the other thing is that um, I spent the last 20 years developing this line of instruments. While there's always the opportunity to improve them, and I'm always looking for those opportunities, the bulk of the work is done. Um, we have the full line now in all the different price points. Um, that's been, uh, you know, a huge focus to accomplish that. You know, we, we talked also a little bit about six-string violin, which I definitely want to do a six-string violin, so that's something coming up in the future. Um, so that's where we're headed. Okay. Um, I, we, we know that your work uh, originally started with um, electric basses and guitars, so talk about maybe some of how starting out with fretted instruments led you to be one of the early adopters of frets on bowed instruments. I mean, it's sort of a, a game changer in a lot of ways for some people. Well, um, you know, we're trying to be, provide new opportunities for violin players or even for people who are not necessarily violin players predominantly, but who play the violin perhaps uh, uh, along with a lot of other instruments. Maybe it's not their first instrument. Um, so the frets make the violin more accessible to a um, uh, less practiced player because you know obviously finding all those notes on the fingerboard is a challenge so uh, there's that aspect of the fretted um, the other aspect is of course that what's beautiful about the frets to my way of thinking is that when you play with a bow the fret doesn't really affect the sound that much and that's another, that's an interesting uh, aspect of, uh, of a bowed instrument, and, and that is that, whereas on a guitar, again, you pluck the string, you put that much energy into it, and that's all you've got. So the structure of the instrument is very important in order to make sure that the vibration is not lost in the instrument, that it doesn't damp out the vibration. So. Uh, I learned, though, early on with a bowed instrument, what really counts on a bowed instrument are the strings, probably number one, maybe. Obviously, the bow, you know, find the detail of the bow is, is very important. I'm thinking about the instrument itself here. You've got um, the string and... Um, You've got, in the case of an electric instrument, a pickup, and in the case of an acoustic instrument, you've got your body, the top and back, and so on. 
the structure of the body, the structure of the neck and everything else on the violin is relatively unimportant because you're not just plucking the string and, and that's all you've got. You're driving the string with this bow. It just changes everything. And the interaction of the string with the instrument is so insignificant compared to the drive that the bow brings in. You know, I was telling you before that um, I made uh, Steinberger uh, violins and I used carbon fiber. That, mm -hmm. that's, it was all Carbon fiber is all about sustain and brilliance and, and the way that the string interacts with the instrument, which again for a plucked instrument is, is everything, but for a bowed instrument it's a waste. I mean to go through, it just doesn't matter that much. Uh, the body on an acoustic instrument matters enormously, so I don't want to be you know, misunderstood there, but the neck and uh, other things that have a subtle impact on the way the string would vibrate on its own are just very unimportant. wraps up our discussion with Ned Steinberger. We had some amazing discussions during the course of my stay in Maine that I wish we could have caught on tape. He's a brilliant designer and has spent thousands and thousands of hours thinking about the issues that musicians face. Every time you pick up an NS design instrument, you can be sure that you are the beneficiary of some very high level thinking and problem solving and a culture that's unique in the way that it depends on artist feedback for design. That's it for this episode of Rockstar Violinist. Please enjoy the playing of NS design artist Lee England Jr. as we leave you. This is his version of If I Ever Fall. <laughs> <laughs>